Thank you, and good morning again. Uh, this is it, by the way. This is the end. Um, well, the end of our study in First Peter. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to oversell that. Um, it's the end of our study in First Peter, I'll say that. And I'm going to warn you just ahead of time, this is going to be... Um, this is probably going to be a different sermon than normal, and I was just talking to Scott briefly at the break. Um, I have prayed a lot about this morning in particular, and I've prayed a lot before this morning. Um, it's very clear to me, I believe, that God is doing something significant and trying to get a message through because it's been the clear message of our worship. It's the clear message of our worship after the sermon, and it's the clear message of the passage that we're in this morning. This sermon's going to be a little bit different, and I'll tell you why. I said at the beginning of the year that I was really excited for this study of First Peter because it's one of my favorite books in all of Scripture, and I think I still believe that, but I will say that God has been using this study and this book in a unique way and a specific way in my own life while we've been studying it together through some really difficult things which ironically is the topic of the book. And as I've studied our passage this morning, I feel a little bit like I'm reading my own story. I feel like I'm reading a little bit of my own story of the last six months or even the last couple of years, and I don't believe it's any coincidence that God has reserved this passage for this time in my life and in the life of our church family. This morning's not about me, but I believe that God is teaching me some very specific things through my walk with him, in my journey with him, and I'm compelled to share those with you for a couple of reasons. One, I think he might be teaching these things to me for your benefit, which is a little bit irritating, <laughs> but I think it might be true. The other reason is that we talk all the time about being a family, and families share and families talk, and families celebrate together, and families talk about difficult things together. So we're going to do some of that together this morning. I like to think of myself as someone who is responsible and organized and has everything in order. That's how I like life to be. That's how I like to perceive myself. That's the really nice way of saying that I am an obsessive control freak. It's not that I want to be in charge of everything. In fact, I'd rather not be in charge of anything. But I want to be in control of everything. I want to be in control of myself, and I want to be in control of my circumstances and my surroundings. And when I'm not, that is deeply unsettling to me. This is one of the reasons that you may have noticed that I manuscript all of my sermons. I literally write them down word for word, because I want to know what I'm going to say when I step before you on Sunday morning, and I want to practice what I'm going to say on Sunday morning, and then I want to say what I meant to say on Sunday morning, because that feels like control to me. Well, today, I, I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. I have an idea. I have a lot of notes but I don't know exactly what I'm going to say because I wrote to Krista on Friday from the office and said, this may be the first time I will preach a sermon 
where I have prayed more than I have studied or written. Which is a little convicting, but I think it just goes to show what God is doing in my heart through his word. And um, I'm giving up a little bit of control in that way this morning, so I'm just going to ask you to bear with me. And um, I found this quote. I actually keep this quote on my computer from Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to read you a part of it. It's written about pastors, and I think this will give you some insight into my heart this morning. Charles Spurgeon says this, Yonder is a poor brother, pastor, who's been tugging away with his brains, wrestling on his knees and bleeding at his heart. He's half afraid that he may break down in the sermon. And he's fearful that he will not reach the hearts of the people, but he means to try what can be done by the help of God. He's looking up to God, for he feels so feeble in himself. That's a very accurate description of how I stand before you this morning. All year, which admittedly is not that long, but all year we've been looking at this book and we've been talking about hope in a hostile world. What does it look like to have hope in the midst of hardship? The hope of salvation, the hope of eternity with God, the hope of this glorious future and glorious inheritance that we have in him and the hope of what God is doing in us and through us right now as we anticipate that future with him. We've been talking about hope. That's the story of the followers of Jesus. It's a story of hope. And our lives are meant to tell that story as people who have Jesus as the Lord of our life. And the cool thing about it is you can't take it from us. That's the message of 1 Peter. It is an imperishable, untouchable inheritance kept in heaven for you, Peter says. You can't take that away. But here's the thing. We can fail to live differently in light of that hope. And we can live a life that looks just like the people around us that don't have that same hope. We can live a life that's anchored in the same hopeless, temporal passing things of this world instead of living a life that's anchored in that glorious future and hope. So the real question for you and for me this morning is, are you living a life of conspicuous hope as a follower of Jesus? Are you so filled up with hope? Is your life so defined by the hope that you have in Christ that your life demands an explanation from people around you? And I don't mean this as a rhetorical question this morning. I mean for you to answer it in your heart, in your mind, not out loud. Are you living a life of conspicuous hope as a follower of Jesus? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, would you please meet us here this morning? I believe you have already. I believe I see your fingerprints on our time together. But Lord, would you speak to our hearts and would you use your words and not my words this morning? Lord, I pray that as we complete our study in 1 Peter that we would begin a revival in our hearts 
a revolution in this church that we would become a people that live with conspicuous hope, that we would be willing to even suffer for the sake of your great name. So let us become people who look more and more and more like you, who point others to you by the way that we live, who care deeply for each other as we pursue you. Lord, would you make us so different that others around us would want the hope that we have, would want the life that we have, and that it's a life that we only have because of you. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we brought some for you. So if you look around the seats, you can probably find one nearby you. You're welcome to cheat off a neighbor. You're welcome to just listen along. If you're using our Bible, we're going to be on page 1016 of the New Testament. So way at the back, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll give you a minute to get there. And while we do, let me just recap the book of 1 Peter, which sounds overwhelming, but we'll make it real quick. You only have to turn back a page to get to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's just look really briefly at what Peter has said throughout this letter. Chapter 1, he said, you've been born again into a living hope. Our hope is alive. Our hope is in Christ, and he's been raised from the dead. We're going to celebrate that together in just a couple weeks. Peter says, you belong to God. You've been born again into his family, and you've been adopted as a full heir of the king. You stand in line to gain this glorious inheritance as a child of the king of the universe. So live differently, he says. Be holy because God is holy. Be like your dad. Your future is different. Your life will never be the same. So live different, even though it's going to be hard to do that. We get to chapter 2. He says, live like Jesus. Jesus gave us the example to follow. So be like him, humble. Be submitted to authority, even when that authority is wrong, even when that authority is unfair, even when that's difficult. Because living that way looks like Jesus and it points people to Jesus. Because when they ask you why you're doing those things, you say, I'm doing that because Jesus did and he's the example that I follow. He continues that into chapter 3 until he says, when you suffer, suffer like Jesus. When you suffer for his name, suffer like he did. And people are going to ask you when you do that, why are you doing that? And then you can tell them, well, I know a guy. I know a guy who lived this way for me, and he's my example. And then we get to chapter 4, and he says, don't be surprised if you suffer for the sake of Jesus. In fact, don't even focus on the fact that you're suffering for the name of Jesus. Focus on how you're suffering. Suffer like him. Suffer like a Christian. Suffer well. And here's why we can do that. Because we remember that our suffering pales in comparison. And it pales in duration to what we stand to gain as a child of the King. What we suffer now as a follower of Jesus pales in comparison and it pales in duration to what we stand to gain as a son or a daughter and an heir to the richest, most powerful, most loving dad there could ever be. So, chapter 5, 
chapter 5 begins with, So, in light of this, in light of everything that I've said so far, let me tell you how you ought to live, and let me tell you why. That's what Peter's going to say to us this morning. Let me tell you how you should live and why. Live like this because of this. That's what he's going to say this morning. Look at these first few verses of chapter 5. So, because of all this, I know this is hard. And look who he starts with. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's going to address everybody in chapter 5. He's going to address the whole room. But he starts with a very limited audience. In this room, it's a handful. He starts with the elders, the overseers, the pastors. In our church, we would say overseers or elders are pastors and vice versa. So today, these words, these first five words are directed at myself. And they're directed at Joe Orr. And they're directed at Steve Janney. And they're directed at Mark Loomis. And they're directed at Mark Comstock. And for a year, in our midst, they're directed at Len Kinzel, who's on loan to us from Ecuador. They're directed at him when he gets back, too. Here's Peter's exhortation to pastors and elders. He says, you're the example, so be the example. I urge you, pastors and elders, to be the example because I just spent four chapters talking about how hard this is going to be. So you'd better live it out in front of people so they know what to do. And who do you follow? Jesus. So that you might be able to say what Paul says, follow me as I follow him. Live like this. Be the example. And it's interesting how Peter starts here because he actually sets some common ground between them. You see at the beginning, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He doesn't pull rank and say, I'm an apostle. I'm like a step up. He says, I'm just like you. I'm also a shepherd. Remember in John chapter 21, when Jesus and Peter reconcile after Jesus comes back from the dead and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Be a shepherd, Peter. Be a pastor. Be an elder. Peter says, I'm an elder just like you. I'm giving testimony. I'm bearing witness to the story of Christ. I'm sharing the gospel just like you guys are. I'm also an heir to the king, an heir to glory. I stand in line to gain the same precious inheritance that you do. I'm just like you. And what is his charge to the elders? Be an example and be a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd leads, a shepherd guides, a shepherd protects, a shepherd cares. A shepherd feeds. It's a dirty job. It's not always fun. 
He says, not because you have to do it, but because you want to do it. Don't do this job under compulsion. Do it because you want to. He says, not because of what you can get out of it, but do it because you have a deep desire to serve the family of God. I can guarantee you none of those men that I named are doing it for the money. He says, not asserting your will over the congregation, not being arrogant, but being an example, being like Jesus. And Jesus' example was to lead by serving. Be a servant. Be like Jesus. And then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus appears, the real shepherd, then you get a prize. You get an unfading crown of glory. And once again, Peter points from what doesn't last to what does last and say, what you stand to gain as you serve God and you're an example to the flock is an unfading crown of glory, an imperishable treasure from God. And I just think it's appropriate to say at this point, I am really privileged to serve alongside those men that I named. Those men who are imperfect, broken, humble servants of God that I believe exemplify what we see in this passage. And I would just say we are very, very blessed as a congregation to have these men and their families serving our church. So I would say thank you to them. I would say thank you to their wives. I would say thank you to their families who give up a lot of time for them. And I would urge you as the congregation to pray for them. Pray for them and their families. Pray for us as we lead and try to live up to this, which we can't. Verse 5, he broadens it out a little bit. <clears throat> says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he starts with the elders and then he goes to the youngers. I think this is directed specifically at younger people. I, this is not everybody else. This is younger people. He says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Submit to the authority of those who God has put in authority in your church. You who are young, you who are eager, you who are smart, you who are full of all kinds of great ideas and energy and passion, be patient. Use that for the body of Christ and not against it. Use those ideas, but submit to the wisdom and maturity of those that God has put in a place of authority. And I say that very humbly because I'm hearing that in my own head and I'm thinking, wisdom and maturity, those aren't things I would use to describe myself. <laughs> That's how God has set it up to work. You are a part of what God is doing in his family. But it's a together thing. And youngers submit to the elders. Then he broadens it out even more. Clothe yourselves all of you, this is all of us, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He says, elders lead this way. Younger submit to their authority. And then he says, everybody, clothe yourselves with humility. Put on humility. 
I know what's important. This is what humility looks like. I know what's important and it turns out it's not me. When I put myself first, I find myself in opposition to God. Do you know why that is? Do you know why God opposes the proud? Because when I put myself first, I've put myself in his place where I don't belong. He says, but he gives grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves before God. And Peter says, just wait for it. He will exalt you. You don't need to exalt yourself. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the hand that discipline comes from and the hand that deliverance comes from. You humble yourself under that hand. And he'll exalt you in his time. When Jesus returns and when we're with him, you will be exalted and share in the glory of Christ. You wait for that. And until then, you humble yourself before God. Then it gets to maybe the hardest verse in the book, at least the hardest verse for me. Verse seven. Casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. It says, put on humility. We clothe ourselves in humility before a mighty God. And we put off anxiety. And you give it to him. What is anxiety? Let me give you the dictionary definition. A feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease. Typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Anybody in here relate to that? Anybody worry? Anybody anxious? Anybody concerned about how things will turn out? Now, doesn't it seem silly after everything we've talked about in the book of 1 Peter, after everything we've studied together, for any follower of Jesus to be worried about the future? Doesn't that seem ridiculous? Doesn't it seem impossible after reading this book to say that we are worried about an uncertain outcome? It's the whole point of the book. We know how it ends. As a follower of Jesus, we already know the outcome. We just don't know what it's going to look like to get there. But we're pretty sure because he's just spent four chapters telling us it's going to be hard. So why are we surprised when it's hard? Our hope for the future is already set. It's anchored in heaven where no one can take it away. No one's going to move it. So Peter says, so give all of that anxiety and all of that worry to the Lord. Why? Because he cares. Because he cares that you're worried. Because he cares that you're anxious. He's not indifferent to where you are. He's actively concerned for you, the God of the universe, who we studied in our, as we walked through the Psalms together, the one who set the earth in motion and the stars in place, cares about you and what's going on in your heart today and this week. That's unbelievable. And then Peter makes it harder. He says, Don't be anxious. Don't worry, followers of Jesus. What are you worried about? And then he writes verse 8, which says, Be sober-minded. 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Don't be anxious. Just Satan prowling around looking for people to destroy. That's all. He says, don't be anxious, be careful. That's what he said. Don't be anxious, be careful. Don't be anxious, be watchful. Because this is the real thing. This is not a game. There is a real, powerful God of the universe, and you belong to him, and your future is set. And he has a real, powerful enemy who is not as powerful as God, who is conquered by God already through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he's the real thing, and you cannot stand against him on your own. And he is not interested in somebody who wants to live a life of conspicuous hope for the glory of God. He is really not interested in a group of people who are committed to living a life of conspicuous hope for the glory of God. He is definitely not interested in a high school full of people who are committed to living a life of conspicuous hope for the glory of God. And he will do a lot to stop it. He's not trying to delay you. He's not trying to deter you. He is looking to devour you, to destroy you. And that looks like destroying you. That looks like destroying your marriage. That looks like destroying your family. It's no joke. It's a real thing. And as the followers of Jesus, we have to be careful and we have to be mindful and we have to resist him by what? By our faith in the only one who has the power to conquer him. In Peter's words, the one who judges justly, the ultimate judge, the chief shepherd, that's where we anchor our hope and our faith. Our trust is in him. So we hold on to the hope that we have anchored in our dad. Because our dad can beat up Satan. And he wins in the end. So we anchor our faith in him. Peter says, live like this. Humbly submitted to God. Giving all of our anxiety over to him. Carefully, prayerfully, faithfully walking through this life in anticipation of heaven which is just so much better than we will ever comprehend. And when we get there, we'll just go, oh, I get it. I could have lived differently. He says, live like this because of this. Look with me at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See whose job it is? Do you see whose work it is? Do you see whose glory it is? It's all God. It says he will restore you. For someone like me, that's helpful because you know what that means? He will put it all back in order. For the guy who measures the distance of every book from the edge of the bookshelf. Really. (laughs) Mireya can tell you. (laughs) It's really nice to know that at some point God will put it all back in order. 
He will strengthen you to stand in difficulty. He will put your feet on firm footing. God will do it. It's his work. It's his glory. It's his job. It's his mission. It's all for him. And he's invited us into that. This is all about what God has done and what God is doing right now and what God will do in the future. It's all about that. God is where hope is anchored, not your ability to do all these things, not your ability to live a good life. We can't. That's why we take the bread. He had to do it for us. Not because we've earned our way into heaven. We can't. That's why we take the cup. He had to do it for us. God is where hope is anchored. God is the one where praise belongs. So praise God and trust him. If his word says we can do it, then we can. He ends the book. He ends his letter to these people he's been writing to. And he says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Peter says, Everything I've written is true. Stand firm in it. Peter just saying, Guys, believe me. I have been through really hard things in my walk with God. I walked with Jesus. I denied him. I was restored to him. I beg you to stand firm because what I'm telling you is real. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Sometimes we read the beginning or end of a letter in Scripture and we just kind of like skim it. We're just like, oh yeah, okay. Footnotes. By the way, so-and-so, send my jacket, please. That's really in Scripture, by the way. What do we take from this? All of chapter 5 has a theme running through it. The theme is together. Together. This is not a me thing. This is an us thing. He says, elders, shepherd the flock. Shepherd us, lead us, feed us, protect us, and lead us by example. He says, youngers, submit to the... I don't know if youngers is a thing, by the way. Youngers, submit to the elders for the sake of us, for the sake of unity. Everybody, clothe yourselves with humility for the sake of us, that we would be together. As you suffer, remember that you suffer with us with your brothers and sisters, not just here, but around the world. And then he says, as I write to you, I write from us. We write to you, your fellow brothers and sisters who love you and pray for you. And here's what we pray for you. We pray peace for you because we know it's going to be hard. So we pray peace for all those who follow Jesus. Are we living a life of conspicuous hope? That's the question. Are you living a life of conspicuous hope? Are you living the kind of life that demands an explanation from people that don't know Jesus? It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to study it. It's a completely different thing to live it. It is completely different. And never in my life have I been so confronted with that fact. This is really hard. 
And when I say I read this and I read my story, here's what I see in chapter 5. I see pastors don't lead under compulsion. Don't lead because you don't want to disappoint anybody. Don't lead because you feel like you have to. Lead because you were called to and because you want to serve the Lord. And he says, give all your anxiety over to God and look out for spiritual attack. And some of you know, I have not been doing this all my life and wrestling with what it means to be a pastor or an elder and wrestling with what it means to have anxiety and worry and wrestling with what real spiritual attack looks like brings a whole new reality to this for me. And I read this and none of it sounds easy, but it's really clear. I mean, it's really clear. So here's what I'm hearing from Peter this morning. What are you so worried about? What are you so worried about, followers of Jesus? What are you so worried about, Dennis? Why do you despair, followers of Jesus? Why do you despair, Dennis? Open your eyes. Open your eyes and look what God has for you. And look what God has done for you. And look what God has in store for you. And now you tell me why you feel despair or worry. Look at how great God is. And you're invited into his presence as an heir of the king. And yeah, it might be hard for a minute. And then you're going to be with him. But I really struggle with it. Because it is hard. And I struggle with the surrender of control and I struggle to trust God. And I'll tell you what I've learned. No, I'll tell you what I'm learning. I don't make myself live a life of conspicuous hope. I don't will myself to live a life of conspicuous hope. I don't effort my way to a life of conspicuous hope. I only live that life by asking the Holy Spirit to do it through me. That's the only way we do this. We look at the book of 1 Peter and we see a list of do's and don'ts and we think, all right, I guess I just better do a better job. I guess I'm not a very good follower of Jesus. It's because we don't allow God to do it through us. We just try to earn it when the whole point of Scripture is you can't. When the whole point of Easter is you can't earn it. You can't live it. So God did it for you because he loves you that much. Easter is two weeks away. It comes every year. And every year we come to church on Easter Sunday, most of us. And every year a bunch of other people come to church on Easter Sunday. In theory, to celebrate our redemption through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the point of Easter, is that we have a unique Sunday to come together and celebrate the fact that we're saved and proclaim the fact that we serve a risen Lord. Easter is our annual reminder of hope. It's the annual reminder of the new life that we have in Christ. Because 
we follow a loving God. It is a reminder that we are empowered to live a life through the power of the Holy Spirit with conspicuous hope that looks completely different than anybody else that doesn't follow Jesus. Hope that waits for us in eternity. Hope that gets us through the difficult things we're going through now because we know what we stand to gain and what God is doing through us today. And we get to do that together. Easter is the time when we get to gather together and worship and proclaim that together and celebrate God together and worship him together and bring him glory because he's the God of hope, because he's the author of hope, because he's the author of our salvation, our redemption. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to commit to doing something for the next two weeks every day. I want to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray for two specific things. I told you I wanted your connection cards out because I want you to write this down somewhere. Somewhere you can see it regularly. I'm asking everybody to pray about these two things. The first is that we would live with hope. Pray every day, Lord, help me to live with hope that the Spirit of God would enable us to live a life of conspicuous hope. Pray that you would come into this place two weeks from today after praying every day with an expectation to praise a risen Lord because of the hope that you have. That the Holy Spirit would do a work in you and make you excited about the hope that you have in your Savior that we would come into this place with an expectation to worship God, not an expectation of great music, not an expectation of a great sermon, an expectation to worship a risen Savior, that God would be glorified as the author of our hope. And I just want to say, can you imagine what it would be like to walk into this place on Easter Sunday with 200 people who have been praying every day that the Spirit of God would work in them for a sense of expectancy of what God would do in this place on Easter Sunday for His glory. Would that be awesome? I would be excited to walk into this place on Easter. Here's the second thing. First, that we would live with hope. The second thing is that we would share the hope. That we would share the hope that we have. Pray that God would give you boldness, an opportunity to share the hope that you have in Christ with someone who doesn't have that hope. Because it's pretty selfish of us to keep it to ourselves. What we have in Christ is unbelievably good, incomprehensibly good. And we know people all around us who don't know that. For some of you, this is the hardest thing I could ask you to do. So I'll, I'll give you an out once, okay? You don't even know what you would say to somebody. First, I'm going to say, talk to me, because you should, okay? Second, that's not a judgment, by the way. I'm just saying, as followers of Jesus, we should be able to share the hope that we have. And if you don't, let's talk. Second, I'll say this. Pray for the boldness to invite them to come here on Easter, because we'll talk about Jesus, and we'll share the gospel, And then all you have to do is follow up. And it gives you a really easy follow-up. Here's the follow-up. What did you think? That's all you need to know. What did you think? Now, 
I want to say something. I, I really actually don't care if the person that you're sharing Jesus with ever comes to this church. I don't care if they ever walk into this building. This isn't about getting a bunch of people here on Easter Sunday. This is about living with hope and sharing that hope. I'm just going to say Easter is probably the easiest ask ever. Because if people aren't going to church on Easter, they probably feel like they should. And an invitation is really all they need. It might be the easiest ask of the year, at least until Christmas. So you've got two weeks to pray for someone and ask for the courage from God to invite them here or to share the hope that you have. And then we're going to worship God together and we're going to talk about Jesus together. And here's what I want you to imagine. Can you imagine what it would be like to be here on Easter Sunday and to find out that there's somebody in our midst on Easter Sunday who doesn't know Jesus that was invited to be here with us and hears the gospel message maybe for the very first time and looks around the room and sees a room full of people worshiping God because he is their only hope. And for the first time in their life, they think this might be the real thing. That's what the church is about. That we would share the hope of Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you there's only one place you find hope, and it's him. You won't find it anywhere else. And if you're looking for it somewhere else, you're going to be disappointed. And if you look for it in Jesus, you will never be disappointed. You will only be overwhelmed. So let's help each other live with conspicuous hope. And that looks like let's help each other kneel before God and say, help us be people of hope because we can't do it on our own. And let's pray for each other and let's hold each other up and let's worship God who is the only one who deserves our praise. And let's praise him now, this morning. I'm gonna invite Scott and the worship team up and I'm just gonna ask if you would worship him this morning. We're gonna sing a song that Scott already sung to us this morning Here's what I'm going to say. The words of that song, man, it's hard to sing if you want to mean it. So I'm just going to say, I would love it if we just blow the roof off of this place and sing it like so loud that anyone else in the building says, what is going on out there? It is also perfectly acceptable to me if we all stand here and stare at the words and say, I don't know if I can sing it. I'll just say, don't sing it unless it's the prayer of your heart. Doesn't mean you have to be living it. It means you have to want it. And if you don't want to ask Jesus for the want to, help me want to live like that. 